Hello, and welcome to Simplifying Shelter Behaviour with me, Tom Candy, the go-to podcast for tips and tricks for working with animal behaviour in a shelter or rescue environment. Hi everybody, thank you for joining for another episode of Simplifying Shelter Behaviour. This week our guest is Chirag Patel, and we're going to be talking about buckets aren't just for cleaning and other tools. Um, How are things with you, Chirag? I'm doing great, thank you. Having a wonderful time in Rome currently, so just enjoying that today. And um, otherwise, yeah, having a great time. Oh, brilliant, yeah. We've just been hearing uh, about Chirag's pasta-making course, which sounds uh, like great fun, so really appreciate you giving up um, some of your time today. So the first thing that I kind of want to dive straight into is last week we had Gene Donaldson on the podcast and we were talking about resource guarding. And that kind of... Yeah, it was really great. And that kind of led us to talk about um, the way that you teach drop, which is something that I use quite a lot. Um, And it's a bit different to how other people might teach drop. So where we're looking at dogs kind of letting go of items. So could you maybe talk us through that straight off the bat? Yeah, sure. Let's get into the meat of it straight away. Um, I like that. Um, So yeah, so basically, I think um, if we think about um, teaching drop, uh, the question we want to ask is what do we want the learner to do? And when I started questioning how I train um, and what I'd been taught traditionally, um, I started to kind of sit down. And also when I started learning more about the field of behavior analysis and um, at large and what it actually means, um, I started questioning everything I do from that lens. And so when I started thinking, okay, if I want to teach a dog to drop something from their mouth, what do I currently do? And if I write down my sequence of events in an ABC format, so like an ABC, 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 and write like a long chain of ABCs and then fill in all the different um, uh, sort of um, situations, then what am I actually reinforcing? Uh, Am I using, what kind of reinforcement am I using? Positive, negative? And I started to go, wait, this doesn't quite make sense in some situations because I may want the dog to open their mouth and drop something. But as I approach towards them, the dog actually tenses up with their mouth on the object and moves away a little bit before I'm able to put the food near their nose or whatever it happens to be. And so um, I started to think, wait, what is the behavior that I want the learner to do? And I thought, I want the learner to open their mouth because if they open their mouth, they can't have something in their mouth at the same time and, um, and keep hold of it. And so then thinking, okay, how would I arrange the environment for them to be able to do this? Um, and then I was thinking, wait, if the dog's eating or looking for food um, or moving towards food, they haven't got anything in their mouth. So they're not practicing tensing up before they let go. Um, so you just started to kind of working through the principle based approach to how I might teach a drop. That's how I came up with kind of the methodology. Now, the methodology looks like um, we start off with a dog who in a number of different situations um, is essentially doing um not doing something that's not um, object in mouth, guarding behavior, or I kind of want this object. And we take some treats, we say the word drop or whichever word you want. It doesn't really matter because dogs don't understand English. Um, You can say banana if you want. And um, you say banana and you drop a handful of treats uh, on the floor. um, And then as you drop the handful of treats on the floor, you kind of point them out and show the dog where the treats are. And it's important that you don't kind of go into a dog space. So if the dog happens to be eating a treat, you don't go and point that treat out, but point a different treat out. And so your hands start becoming also a cue for something positive. Good things are going to happen as opposed to they're going to take something away. 
and also by practicing in different situations. So the dog could be lying in their bed, the dog could be sitting next to you at the dining table, you could be walking down the street, um, you could be putting your jacket on, you could have the lead in your hand, it could be when you're meeting another dog. In lots of different situations you practice, so you start uh, catching essentially those motivational states um, under those contingencies so that um, regardless of the situation and the emotion and the motivation that the dog is currently experiencing, um, when you say the word drop it starts to become um oh i look for uh food and also the hand being there part of the picture is a good thing um, and then we can add in some different um steps where it could be um you let the dog have something that is not very valuable and um it could be something the dog's really not that interested in either um and you keep practicing the same thing and it's not necessarily you're not waiting for the dog to drop anything because the dog hasn't got anything to drop in the first place so you're literally just saying the word and then doing the action um, until the point where you start to increase the value of the object that the dog has and you uh, when you say the word say the dog is sniffing the object or is nibbling on the object they within a second or less latency they move away from that object and they're like where's the treats and they start sniffing around um, and so on youtube there's a guide a video guide to how i do it you can see with my old dog cody and how I taught in different steps. And you see at the end of the video, I give him a hot dog. And as he goes to chew it, I say drop, and he just spits it out. So um, essentially, that's a quick uh, summary of teaching drop. Um, so yeah, what kind of questions do you have? Do you think, um, do you want to add any more to that, Tom? Yeah, no, that's really great. So I think part of the reason that I asked you to come on the podcast is I think your videos are probably some of the ones that I use most with sort of staff and adopters for dogs. And I, I think part of that is because you do such a brilliant job of breaking down the steps. Um, and what I really like with the video with Cody, which we'll link, is like you start with like a bicycle helmet or a motorcycle <laughs> helmet. So something that the dog just couldn't even pick up if they wanted to. And I think that's what is really great about you and your practice is you're kind of always thinking about how do we set the dog up, the learner up for success? How do we arrange the environment in, in a way that's just going to make it really beneficial for the dog and for the teacher? Um, so, yeah, it's just really great. And I, I think it's that is the key here is when we're teaching, it's moving away from that approach that a lot of trainers or people coming into training or maybe looking at the field of training and behavior change from the outside. So maybe they might define their role as a slightly different role. It could be a manager, it could be um, a caregiver, it could be um, um, a foster carer or a dog walker. Um, and they look at in, they're looking into that and going, oh, I'm not a trainer, but I do a bit of training. And I think what we're trying to look at is training isn't about trial and error. Um, it's never really been about trial and error. And if we look at the work of Skinner and um, look at the writings of Skinner, um, that training is actually about trial and success. So every time we set up the opportunity to engage in behavior for reinforcement, we make it likely that that behavior is already going to occur and it's going to contact some kind of positive reinforcement because otherwise um, that behavior is not going to strengthen in any way. And so it's not about will the animal get it right? Let's see and if they don't i'm just going to ignore it or uh, punish them it's more about can i arrange the environment for them to succeed and for them to contact that reinforcers because if they do by definition um, then their behavior will uh, strengthen yeah definitely and i think that's even kind of it's important for all animals um, but i think even when we're starting to think of shelter animals who might be already in an environment that's potentially detrimental to their learning or their welfare 
that idea that you know they're having as much success as possible and we're constantly filling that positive bank account interactions with staff you know interactions with the environment and that end learning that can only be beneficial for those dogs can't it yeah definitely i think it's a i think it's something that could be really positive and and it can really change the way you um interact with that individual and the relationship that you form if we can change um our approach to teaching and learning yeah brilliant so another video that i think is really useful and, and a tool that we can add to our toolkit which i use quite a lot with staff is the counting game um so could you tell us a little bit more about that yeah sure so um the counting game um looks like you start to um essentially count so you say one um and you already have a handful of treats close by and as you say one you put a treat on the floor next to you or next to your shoe um and so and then i say two and i place a treat next to my shoe i say three i place a treat next to my shoe and i keep or on the floor um, near me and i keep doing that until the dog turns and they start to move towards me now depending on what i'm teaching it may kind of depend on at what point do i stop counting and at what point do i move away um, but essentially let's say for example the dog has an object or the dog is watching another dog and i basically start to say one treat on the floor two treat on the floor three treat on the floor and the dog starts to turn and move in my direction towards the treats i might stand up and just walk away and the dog eats those treats and as they finish i just start saying one put a treat on the floor two and um, you should find that what starts happening is as you say one or two even if before you've got a count of six or seven um, the dog is actually turning on the count of one and um, with caregivers uh, sometimes if you're out walking and your dog sees another dog or they hear a sound it can be easy for us to um, have a emotional experience and also uh, focus on oh my god last time my dog lunged at the other dog and i'm going to need to hold the leash tight um, this way we could move away from uh, educating the caregiver what we don't want them to do don't tighten the lead don't um, stand there stiff we focus on what we want them to do so it gives the caregiver a goal behavior and also it gives the caregiver something to do that's easy and accessible for them usually within their learning repertoire uh, for most people they can count to 10 and um, if they're busy counting to 10 they're less likely just standing there holding the leash tight um, and uh, for the dog it removes potentially many poison cues or um, giving cues that um, are signals for reinforcers that you don't want to signal. So if previous learning has been, uh, we see a dog and I say, Rover, watch me. No, don't do that, Rover. Rover, look at me. Rover, sit. Rover, target. And uh, maybe they've learned. I target. I take the food and then I bark, bark and lunge again. Um, this way we remove saying the word target, which means touch my hand and then start barking again. Um, and they start hearing this word one, two, three, which they haven't heard before. And so because most people don't train their dogs by counting. And so it's an, essentially a novel or a different sound for the dog which doesn't mean or set the dog up to fail and actually maybe sets them up to succeed again um, so it gives the caregiver something to do it um, gives the dog new information and then essentially you can do transfer the cues so i could say rover come one two is if the dog is already coming when you say one they just start learning that rover come means the same as one or i can say rover drop one um, or whatever it is that you're trying to teach by using the counting game um so that's um a, a quick um summary of the counting game yeah no perfect i think 
it's just a really great sort of foundation exercise isn't it because like you said you can then use it to transition into a multiple of different things um and for shelter you know i i find it quite useful for sort of introducing dogs to new adopters because again you've got the predictability and exactly like you said it gives adopters something to do which i think is really important particularly if you're working with a dog who might want a bit more distance when they first meet a new person often you know, we kind of say oh please don't touch the dog yet or just engage it in conversation with me and kind of ignore the dog and that's a really hard thing to do is um it's the pink elephant isn't it like if you if you say to somebody don't think about a pink elephant it's going to be one of the first things they think of so it's a really nice exercise that again adds kind of a bit of predictability a positive experience for that dog and is thinking about the caregiver as well Exactly. And I think that's a, such a key, uh, key point there is um, it as predictability and it also gives someone something what to do. So rather than saying, don't touch my dog, it's like, could you just count some treats out on the floor? And the dog goes, oh, I know what that means. So essentially, because they've got a reinforcement history that cues predictive or positive reinforcement, the dog already looks more potentially more com- what we might label as confident. And also it gives the stranger something to do rather than reaching out and putting the treats in the dog's mouth or trying to touch the dog. Um, and so you can have multiple functions um, and even something like jumping up um, if the dog's jumping up rather than saying to the dog get off don't jump up we just ask people as you walk into the front door or as a guest walks into your front door you or you walk into a kennel you start counting and very quickly because a dog's head is down the whole body weight is down it's hard for a dog to have the body weight down and be jumping at the same time and so you can even see a reduction in behaviors of jumping up for example um, and especially where we're focusing more on teaching people as trainers who focus on using as much positive reinforcement and minimizing aversives in their training. We're teaching people to set their learners up for success and to uh, focus on reinforcing what we want rather than focusing on what we don't want. Um, And so as positive reinforcement based trainers, a lot of times we hear ourselves saying to people in puppy class, if your dog jumps up, ignore them. But we're essentially teaching them to focus on the behavior we don't want. Um, And so um, rather than teaching that, let's focus on when you walk in, you start counting. And so it gives them something to do to set the learner up for success. And rather than teaching them, it's about the dog's got it wrong because they jumped up. So we ignore them. And I said, we might not be saying that, but that's what our caregiver is going to hear. Or that's what maybe a person who's not a professional trainer may hear is my dog's got it wrong. So I have to tell them they're not getting a treat. And it's kind of giving the wrong message, potentially, whereas we're trying to teach people to focus on what do you want your dog to do? Let's focus on setting them up for success rather than focusing on what's wrong in air quotes. Yeah, definitely. And I think going back to something you said about sort of when you've got a visitor coming over, you can ask them to do it as well. The simplicity of it means that anybody can do it. And I think, you know, where we've got dogs in shelter where you're potentially being exposed to a couple of people during the day, like different handlers, maybe people from the training team, you know, whatever it is, it is then a consistent message that the dogs can be given from staff, regardless of, like you said, what we're trying to stop them doing or teach them to do, um, which is just going to help them settle into that environment um, and get the most out of their time. So it's it's definitely a really, really useful skill for people to kind of work on. Um, and like you said, it, it's just simple. Like it just takes a couple of seconds. You don't even have to really do much setup. You just have some treats with you. You can do it anywhere um, and everywhere. Exactly. Uh, keep it, uh, kiss, keep it short and simple. Um, I think the more we do that, um, and not just, sh- I think shelter work is 
in that forum is so important because often uh, people are understaffed, uh, maybe um, there's more dogs than there are uh, carers, um, and sometimes time is often, people say, time's restricted. And so if you can have something that's short and simple can be really beneficial, but then that also translate, trans, uh, translates or transfers to um, your doctors or um, uh, ho uh, dogs in homes because people have lives, they want to go shopping, they want to drop their kids to school, they have to get to work, do other things drink their cocktails and so not not many everyday people want to spend hours and hours training their dogs and so if we can just simplify it, it i think it's going to help more dogs in the long term as well yeah 100 percent, definitely and I, I like your uh, changed version of kiss a bit more kind of people friendly <laughs> so sort of yeah the main kind of title for this episode is is obviously buckets on just for cleaning um so can you maybe talk about what i probably mean by that So yeah, so buckets, uh, essentially the bucket game. Um, and um, so the bucket game is um, a way for our dog or our learner to be able to have some control in an interaction. Um, and so what that could look like is you could have a object, it could be a bucket. Now, but the name bucket game came from, well, essentially it was, I was teaching at Tilly Farm uh, for Sarah Fisher. And before that, let's backtrack a second. Um, I was teaching a workshop, I think it was in LA. And um, I do an exercise with like, a, it used to be with a food bowl, with a plastic container and i happened to go to a, a well-known shop like a, a big um, a supermarket type thing in the states and they had on discount these cute little buckets and so i bought them they're easy to travel with and i was using them in my workshops for the same kind of game and uh training procedure and um when I was teaching for Sarah, we did that. And um, Sarah was like, what's that bucket game thing that you're doing the other day? Or um, and that kind of like, oh, yeah, let's call it the bucket game. So that's where the bucket game came from. So you don't need a bucket. Um, it's just essentially a container. Um, and I start off with food in there, but you could have toys or anything. You could have an empty container if the dog guards objects or things like that. Um, and then uh, what we start to do is we essentially just teach the dog that food comes to you um, on the floor or um, in your mouth or on a chair or on a platform or somewhere like where you can reach for it uh, with four feet on the floor when you're looking calmly towards the object um, and so the dog's looking and for most people this is easy to do you get an object out you get a bucket or a bowl and the dog's looking already towards the bowl and you feed the dog and um, I tend to simplify it again so um, try and maybe start with the dog behind the baby gate or you can hold the bucket or the object really high and so high enough where the dog won't even try and jump for it and just feed the dog um, lower down so their body weight is down so they like to keep their feet on the floor and then I start to lower the object so essentially the object could be at the dog's height it could be right in front of the dog it could be on the floor in front of the dog um, it could be visually like on a, a kitchen counter and the dog's on the floor looking if you want to keep a little bit more physical distance uh, for safety depending on your individual learner and um, once we have a dog who's comfortably looking in the direction of the bucket um, and again, when we're teaching this, we're not trying to do it like, I call it the traditional dog leave behavior. Um, what I mean by that is, um, where we used to like well, people a lot of people still do is you take a treat put it in front of the dog's nose if the dog tries to get it you ignore them or you take the hand away and then you represent and when eventually when the dog takes a step back or moves away we let them have it we don't do it that way we don't increase the amount of frustration or extinction that's used uh, we're setting this dog up for success as we teach this 
And so um, once we have this, then what we can start to do is you bring the object out, the dog standing, sitting, lying down. Um, there's no one behavior that the dog has to do. So topographically, meaning the form of the behavior could be different um, based on whatever the dog is comfortable, um, based on changing motivation. So a dog could start off by standing and looking, but they could be sitting halfway through or they could be lying down halfway through. And um, once they're looking at the object um, in any way and they're calm, they're relaxed, um, then we start to uh, move our hand in a way that uh, maybe is a little bit of movement and it could just be a little finger movement and if the dog looks away from the object we stop moving our hand and rather than stop moving our hand we could say our hand goes back on our lap so when the dog looks away from the bucket our hands go on lap when the dog looks at bucket we start to move our hands and it could be waving in the air approximating touches to the dog it could be picking up an object next to the dog um, so anytime dog looks at bucket you move object move your hand anytime dog looks away from the bucket your hands go on your lap and so essentially start to form some contingencies that are very predictable and clean and clear that the learner goes oh Every time I move my head towards the bucket, um, hands are going to move, objects are going to move, and I'm going to uh, get given a treat. Anytime I turn my head away, um, I get um, people people's hands go back on their laps. You can even also add other elements to this. So you could have like a, a bed or a blanket or a mat um, in the room. You could have a Kong toy um, away from you so that if the dog goes to the bed or the blanket um, or the sofa, you also toss them a cookie. So it's not that the only way they can get a cookie is by standing there playing this game they could also get it by going to the blanket next to um, a couple of steps away and so essentially you could build up those hand movements into putting a muzzle on into grooming into doing eye drops ear drops teeth brushing stitch removal you name it it could be anything so that's um the quick version of how what the bucket game is about perfect and it kind of falls into that that sort of broad category of, of cooperative handling or what some people might call cooperative handling, which is something that you're kind of really keen on, isn't it? And have been for a long time. So what kind of started your interest in, in that specific area of training? Yeah, so 100%. I think for me, it can be used for a whole range of reasons. So like even out of cooperative um, care behavior, so if you have a dog who screams and lunges at people or other dogs, you could even use it so that, uh, say, for example, um, you have a person that, that the dog knows, or it's yourself, um, walk by with a bucket and the dog looks, they get the treat, and then you can be there with your dog uh, walking down the street and someone walks by on the other side. And as they walk by, they hold the bucket up and and so the dog starts to go, oh, stranger, rather than scream at them, I look to see if they've got a bucket. Um, or it could be like we've got a bucket and the dog looks towards the bucket and that's a signal that a door's going to open at a distance that's comfortable for the dog. And then essentially... If the dog looks away from the bucket, um, or when the dog um, when the dog looks away from the bucket, that you um, you close the door, um, and then when the dog goes back to the bucket, you um, open the door, and the bucket could be facing the direction of the door, and then essentially it could be where the dog appears, so the stooge dog or the um, 
and dog you're teaching the dog so the dog has control when does a scary scary thing appear when does it disappear um so we can use it for lots of different contexts so that was one thing and then the other thing that you asked me specifically there was where did my interest in cooperative care come from uh we had a, a family dog a german shepherd who um bit someone when, um, within a few weeks of getting him and also at the vet he was um he would try and bite them and so actually working with him got me really interested in wait um can I use some of the stuff that we're doing uh, with like using the training for sit and down and all these obediency type things? Can I use it for um, the vet behaviors? And also having um, hearing people like Ken Ramirez and um, other people who think when you think about like Ken always um, or a lot of his talks, it starts off with the idea of, OK, where does his philosophies come from and what's important to him? And he goes, um, his belief is um, training should first and foremost, or training can be used for different reasons. You can have primary reasons, secondary reasons. Primary reasons are reasons that benefit the individual um, that you're teaching or training um, directly, whereas secondary reasons um, could benefit other species of that, um, or other animals of that species, other individuals, people. Um, so say I'm teaching a dog to do something, does that benefit that individual in some way? Does it improve their life um, in the world they have to live in? Um, or is it that I'm doing it because it makes my life easier or makes uh, it helps increase research? And so we should essentially, first and foremost, use training to benefit the individual that is being trained. Um, and then we can use training uh, for the larger purpose as well. And then the other aspect of it is when I think about it, um, all the research shows that um, dogs are beings that experience emotions, um, they feel pain, um, they are they rich and have a very rich internal environment and they don't have many choices um, or much control in life. So we choose that they're going to live with us. We choose the role that they're going to fulfill, uh, whether it's substitute children or whether it's a guide dog or um, whether they end up in a rescue center. The dog really has no choice. And so even we could say, well, I rescued the dog. Maybe the dog should be grateful because I rescued them from a rescue center. But that's just all human thinking and human constructs. Uh, we call it rescue. The dog never asked to be put in that situation in the first place. The dog didn't say, come rescue me. Um, we're the ones are doing this so the dogs have very little control over their life and um so why do we after that expect the dog to have to tolerate um basic care behaviors um if we're using uh training to make our lives easier my dog doesn't chew my furniture so um it's easier for me my dog doesn't pee and poo in my house so it's easier for me how why can we help it to benefit the dog themselves and so all the training we do um if we've got a dog that can do 5000 behaviors but then when we need to groom them or put their lead on or um check their body or um have some medical treatment ear treatment they get really stressed or um they have a difficult time then that doesn't seem very fair so i think um my passion is kind of looking at using behavior science and the technology to help improve the lives of the animals that we care for that benefit them directly rather than just benefiting other people or um, other animals so that's kind of fits in with the these uh, cooperative care side of things i think yeah definitely that makes complete sense and i think like you said that being able to add the element of choice to a situation which you know if we're thinking of veterinary handling or grooming and it's a dog who already doesn't like those experiences adding a bit of choice in can make a, a massive difference for the learner and i think when we think specifically about the bucket game 
what's nice is like you said it doesn't really other than looking at the bucket it doesn't really matter what the dog's doing in that moment whether they're sitting lying down so again if we think about people who might have slightly less experience than they're working in Charlotte or when we think of our adopters we're removing a lot of the layers of you know having to be able to teach a long duration behavior like a chin rest which might be another really great tool for cooperative handling but the initial step of the bucket game is you've just got to look at this thing that is potentially already full of food um so it's just super helpful in setting up that learner for success like we've already talked about so much during this episode one thing that i kind of hear sometimes is the potential for, for conflict i guess so like you know the dog's looking at the bucket whether or not it's got food in it and then something's happening and maybe they're kind of they don't really want to be in that situation but they stay there because of the potential for reinforcement so we might label that as as kind of overshadowing i suppose but can you maybe talk about that a little bit and how we can get around that yeah sure so um i think it's definitely something we need to consider is um so are we setting up a situation where um the dog so the dog is maybe leaning away or they're tucking the tail and moving away um, and um, we're kind of uh, using food um, to keep them in that situation um, and so think about the safety aspect of it but I think having other ways for the learner to access food. So within that training situation, like I said, having a mat or a Kong toy, it could be an empty Kong toy, or a pyramid, um, like a Kong wobbler or something that's there, the dog can go over and access food um, in a different way or by just going to a mat and get food. So they don't have to be right in front of us. And that can eliminate that. But also I think it's kind of thinking and changing um, how dog trainers think of body language a little bit. I think um, in dog training, um, sometimes dog trainers have become very fixed on thinking about um, body language, about and topography being important and the most important thing. And essentially, um, when they're thinking about training in general, um, they're using a functional-based approach. But then often, often when it comes to body language, they're thinking more ethology, as in um, if a dog tucks their tail, if a dog blinks or yawns, that they could be stressed. Um, and, and because it's a dog and because yawning means that it's a sign of stress in dogs. And essentially, sometimes trainers even completely uh, put aside learning and forget that learning plays a huge role. And so for me, it's not about body language equals one thing, because like with humans, I, I can learn to manipulate what I do based on the consequences that select those behaviors and it changes the function of those behaviors. So for example, I could drink and you could say I drink because I'm thirsty because as people, we drink when we're thirsty. But I remember going to a gym and as you know that um, I have like a physique that matches Craig Ogilvy. Um, and so <laughs> my personal trainer and um, he would say, do 10 push-ups, and I may do five push-ups, and then I go to take a break, and he goes, no, no break. Okay, do 10 more. Um, that um, So taking a break was punished, and actually gave me, I had to do more. And one day, um, I did five or six, or it doesn't really matter the number, I picked up my water bottle, and then I went back to doing push-ups, and as I drank my water and started doing the push-ups again, he didn't add more additional 
push-ups or a penalty. And so I learned that, oh, if I need a break, if I start drinking, um, I get a break. Um, it's not I'm drinking because I'm thirsty. I'm drinking because it gives me a break. So I can use it functions as an, a, a sort of avoidance or escape behavior. And so dogs can learn to do that all the time is they might learn if I start tucking my tail, I start yawning, the person starts to stop um, saying things to me, stop saying touch, 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 or sit, 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 or tr stop trying to do, make me do something, or they go and do something else, or they make an exercise easier. And so we need to look at behaviors from not just topography, but functional lens um, always, and ask the question, how, why did this individual in front of me um, learn to yawn? And it's not just because it's a dog and that yawning is a sign of stress, it's why did this particular dog learn to use yawning in this situation? And why I'm saying this, it may go, wait, how does this like fit into your question, is when we're teaching um, a behavior with a bucket, say for example, if our approximations are small enough and say that person is just focusing on um, whether you're looking at the bucket or not, and um, there's other behaviors like ears back or yawning or lip licking, potentially if what you're doing is positive reinforcement, um, then by um, that experience and shaping process and access to positive reinforcement, the emotions are gonna change and um, the body language is also potentially gonna change. You're gonna get different behaviors or you might get the same behaviors if you're reinforcing tail down or each, each time, then potentially the tail's gonna stay down, but it doesn't necessarily mean the animal's in conflict. Um, it could mean you shape the animal to have that body position with how what you're reinforcing. And so I thing um it's i want to do both and i want to kind of be aware that okay can i reduce it so I, I have other ways for the dog to access reinforcers um i maybe um rather than always feed the treat in front of me at the bucket i throw the treat away in different places so the dog has an opportunity to go get the treat from the other end of the room and then come back or not come back and i can see whether there's more latency and then reduce my criteria adjust my criteria based on what i'm seeing so if we're using a data-based approach and observing what's in front of us rather than inferring what's in front of us, um, that can also reduce the likelihood of some of the examples that you shared there and make it more likely that uh, it's going to be beneficial to the, to the learner. Yeah, definitely. I think that's kind of how I tend to approach those situations as well, is, is that idea that the dog's always just giving us information, like there's always information available to us, and it's what we then do with that information. So if a dog you know to to kind of break it down a bit simpler if a dog failed a trial in inverted commas so you went to touch the dog and they took their head away from the bucket like we should still reward that but the information is that was too difficult for the dog or for you know whatever reason the dog wasn't successful but for us as the teacher all we can do is reduce that criteria which might be not moving our hand as much or changing something in the environment if it was a noise for example that distracted the dog alongside then exactly what you said how do we set up our environment so the learner has that choice and you know we think about our rate of reinforcement and our setup and everything else to try and get as many successful um trials as possible no, and I think like what you just said there about so okay the dog turns her head away you cannot just withhold food but you could throw the food on that mat or what at the sofa or somewhere that's further away. And then I think we also have to as trainers, I think so like we um I've been I've been doing this for a while is like I use the word choice as well when I'm talking, but sometimes I don't define what I mean by choice. And I think as trainers, choice is a very sexy word. And with um 
if you think about um, the culture in which we live and how choice is seen as a positive thing and we should be empowering people and giving them more choices, but we never really ask the question, what is choice? And we kind of look at choice as being something that is like part of free will. Um, and um, it's just that I'm making a choice, but is there really choice? What is choice? And that's a different whole, probably a podcast or conversation to go into. Um, however, when we say the dog chose to look away or they chose to look this way, essentially that's just um, a, a learning, not just, but it's it's a learning history, it's selected through consequences, um, and there's cues in the environment that are evoking those behaviours, um, and that's based on those cues that become meaningful, based on selection through consequences and learning, and also genetics and biology um, and all of those factors. So um, those things are shaping what we're calling choice. Now, if we just go with, oh, the dog chooses to turn his head away when I pick up a bottle of eardrops, and we always put the eardrops down or we always go I'm going to take a step back or the dog's always going to choose that that's where the consequences go that's where behavior is going to go and so I think we have to remember when we think about choice as well is we don't go too fluffy and I think that's one of the things that um, is happening now is because I think along like a while back we weren't thinking about choice and control. Like sometimes I think control might be a good way to think about it rather than choice, is how much control does a learner have in a situation, how much predictability, what do cues mean, but then always coming back to where does that come from? How do certain cues, certain um, changes in the environment mean things? It's what we're teaching the dog what it means by how we're setting up the environment. So if I reduce my uh, criteria um, on one end and I make it more likely that if the dog stays at the um, bucket when I move my hand um, just a millimeter and they get more treats and that's reinforcing, the dog's going to stay at the bucket more when I start to move my hand more. Um, and so I think we want to think about empowering our learners. We do want to be think about having maybe multiple cues available in the environment where the animal can access different options or different outcomes. You can walk away and go to a mat, you can stay at the uh, bucket, um, but maybe think of it more scientifically rather than maybe more fluffy choice um, uh, thing as well. So I think it's just important to remember that as well um, because, yeah, because I think we've kind of sold choice a lot. And sometimes I think as trainers, we um, think of it in a more fluffy way. Yeah, definitely. I often talk about it as sort of perceived choice. So, you know, we want the animal to think that they, and we want the animal to have control of the environment, like you said, but particularly in shelter, often, you know, we are kind of moving towards ideally rehoming those animals. And that sometimes means having to move forward with behavior modification. Um, so we want that kind of perception of choice. So the animal feels good and, and is engaged in the session or whatever you're doing whilst kind of still moving towards the goal. And I think that kind of fits with all of the reasons that you've just talked about. And I was going to say, it just comes back to what we started with uh, right at the beginning of the conversation is about training being about trial and success over trial and error is if we take, if we start focusing on trial and success, we're kind of just going, okay, so what behavior um, do I want my learner to engage in under what conditions? How do I um, set the environment up for that behavior to be more likely to occur? And it could be one behavior I want when a child approaches the dog can go to uh, their crate or they can go to a mat which is away from the child um, and access reinforcers and the dog can also stand sniff the child's feet or um, sit or lie down next to the child and that can access reinforcers and we make sure that both um, have reinforcing outcomes and then under those conditions both behaviors are available
we can start to think more that way as opposed to again like we think okay um like you say uh perceived choice and so training as trial and success is important over uh trial and error yeah i love that i think it's a really important part isn't it and we often focus on why things haven't gone right which is also the right thing to do but actually if we put a little bit of time in forward planning and really thinking about how we set the environment up like that we're almost front loading aren't we so it might take slightly longer to start before you start your training but you're probably going to hopefully move through that training better and the learner is probably also going to have a better experience of that training um which is just as important as actually reaching that end goal exactly yeah definitely brilliant so just one last question then because i think we've you know sort of talked about some really great tools but also some kind of wider behavior um ideas so the question that we kind of finish with with everybody is sort of what three top tips would you give for people working in charter and we normally do it kind of related to the topic i think it's quite tricky with this one so i don't know if you've got some general tips sure um so top three tips would be the first one would be um see the learner in front of you or the animal in front of you the behavior in front of you rather than the one in your head um, or the story that we create because so often we go in with oh yesterday another dog barked at my dog or something happened and traumatized the dog so today i have to be really sensitive or calm around the dog but you could walk in that situation or walk your dog out the kennel and walk past another dog and your dog actually goes oh, that dog attacked me yesterday, but I actually want to go and say hello to that dog. And so always focus on what's in front of you, what's the data saying, as opposed to creating stories. Um, and so I think that's a huge one. Um, another one I think get fits in in a similar thread is um, labels. Um, I really do think um, this is important everywhere, but especially in shelter work, is it's so easy to start to think about dogs in shelters are always traumatized. But what does that actually mean? Like, is such a buzzword in uh, in behavior right now is oh my animal's traumatized or but what what trauma where do we see this trauma what do you actually mean by that um is the dog really traumatized how do we measure it or labels like this is a rescue dog wait what makes them different to any other dog on this planet um and just because they're a rescue dog um like a shelter dog it could be that if you have a puppy in a shelter they've actually accessed way more enrichment and socialization than a dog in a home bred by a breeder where they may not have seen many people so again um, it can go both ways but i think what are those labels and how are they influencing the way we're perceiving the world and the animal in front of us so really again coming back to look at the learner in front look at the behavior in front be objective um, and bring that head and the heart to the table um, and then uh, maybe for my third tip um, let's think what would i say my third tip would be actually i'm just going to go with those two tips i think uh, they're really important and rather than just throwing a third one out there when i don't have one available for the sake of it i think actually i'm going to stick with my two yeah perfect i think they're brilliant tips that kind of do does do a good job of summarizing what we've talked about um and yeah we we obviously spent a lot of time together in America recently at um, the Pet Professional Guild Conference. And since then, I've been having like a complete um, internal crisis about labels and, you know, what that means. So we'll have to have to get you back on um, in the future to talk more about that because, yeah, you've kind of really, I, I mean, obviously we've 
known each other for a long time and you've always had a big impact but yeah definitely since then i've really kind of been considering how we talk about the dogs that we're working with so yeah thanks for that <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, you're welcome and the third one um okay so a non-forced third one was kiss keep it short and simple yeah so I one would be a really important one is in shelters um a top tip would be or in anywhere try to simplify it don't overly complicate it and um make it practical and usable perfect yeah absolutely brilliant um so where can people find out more about you or find out more of what you're doing they can go um i'm on social media so facebook page um or instagram are the two main ones that i use at the moment and so they're chirag patel consulting along with my YouTube channel, which is also Chirac Patel Consulting. Um, and I tend to put a lot of videos out there, freely available on different topics. Um, and I do have a website, chiracpatelconsulting.com, which is not up to date at the moment, but um, I think it's a uh, worth keeping an eye on because um, I'll try and be more up to date and uh, keep things up to date on there at some point in the future. But um, they would be the main um, places. Perfect. Um, we'll put all of those links in the show notes for everybody. But thank you so much for taking time out of your little uh, European adventure to speak to us. Um, uh, thank you for um, having me. And I think uh, thank you so much for all the amazing stuff you do as well. And like the passion you have for rescue and um, all the time you put into um, creating like resources like this that make it um, or hopefully share information to so many people. Oh, thank you. And yeah, hopefully we'll have you back in the future to talk a bit more about uh, ABA and some some other things, labels. <laughs> Definitely, let's do it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Simplifying Shelter Behaviour. Don't forget to like and follow the podcast for future updates. If you're interested in hearing more free tips and tricks related to working in an animal shelter environment, you can follow us on Facebook at Simplifying Shelter Behaviour.